This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Let me tell you something. I highly, highly recommend this book for anyone who is in Shaduchim. And I'll tell you why. I cannot tell you how many young people I've spoken to who are in Shaduchim, and they have these illusions of what they need. I need this. I need that. This is what this is imperative. This is vital. I can't, I can't possibly marry someone who doesn't have these qualities. And the vast majority of the time, I find that they say those things only because they have no clue as to what a marriage really is about. They have no clue what they need to be happily married. And I believe that reading this book will give you a much clearer understanding of marriage and therefore what it is that you should be looking for and what is utterly, totally irrelevant that people put so much emphasis on. So if you're in the Shidduch process, I highly recommend the book. First of all, let me say this. The time to read this book is not on the way down to the chuppah. That's not when you're going to start gaining a better understanding of marriage. That's a little late in the game. Uh, the time is before. I used to, I was a high school Rebbe for 15 years. I, my guys were 17 years old. I used to teach them about marriage. I said, Rebbe, we're 17. I said, the time to learn this stuff is now, not five years after you're married. So, Number one, it's a very good idea to learn before you're married. Number two, I guarantee it will help you dramatically with a clear understanding as to what marriage is, and that will make it much easier for you to know what to look for, what to avoid, what you really do need, and how to go about the process. So yes, the answer is if you're in Shaduchim and dating, I absolutely recommend it. Um, it's really it's recommended for, for anyone in dating, anyone certainly married, uh, anywhere, you know, so, um, yes, highly recommended. Okay. All right. So at this point, we're going to start. Um, did I forget anything? No, I don't believe I did. Okay. We can, now we can begin. The Gemara Shabbos tells us, my Hanukkah, for what nace was Hanukkah created? Why did Chazal stipulate there should be a Yom Tov called Hanukkah? And the Gemara tells us because the Yavonim went into the Heichal, they were metama, all the shemonim. There were certain oil that was set, separated to be used for menorah. And the Yavonim found them, and they basically metama them. When the Malchus based Chashmanoi, when the Chashmanoi dynasty won out against the Yavonim, they searched the entire base of Mikdash. All they could find was a small flask of oil, and that was sealed with the Kohen Gadol seal. That oil was only sufficient to light for one night. A nace happened. They were able to light for eight nights, until they were able to get enough oil for rekindling the menorah. The next year, they made it into a Yom Tov, the Yom Tov of Hanukkah. And that's a Gemara. Very clear. The reason that Chazal created the Yom Tov of Hanukkah was because a little bit of oil that should have lasted one night lasted eight nights. Okay. The only problem with that is, the morale explains, and that's contradictory to what we read in the Alanisim. The Alanisim was written by Tanoim hundreds of years earlier than this Gemara. And the Alanisim is very, very clear that the reason we have Hanukkah is Alanisim Valagvuras Alatshuas. Rav Tesrivam, Hashem, you fought a battle. Dan Tesrivam, you judge your judgment. Nakam Tesrivam, you took our revenge. And the Alanisim is very clear. And you gave over small amounts to great amounts. You, the, the, Enemies surrounded us. They attacked us, and you fought our battles. You judged our judgments. You took our revenge. It's very clear from the Alanisim that the miracle of the war, the fact that we beat the Yavonim, was the reason that Chazal made Hanukkah. And yet the Gemara says the reason is the oil. Ask the morale two questions. Number one, the fact that oil lasts is nice, but therefore what? You don't make an entire holiday for thousands of years for an entire nation just because of a miracle of oil lasting. But number two, listen exactly what the Alanisim is telling us. It's for the wars, the battles. Hashem, you stood up. They stood to eradicate Torah from the Klyasrol. Hashem, you fought the battles. So the Gemara says it's the oil. And the Alanisim says it was the battles. How do we reconcile the two? Explains the morale that in reality, of course, the Alanisim is correct. The reason that we celebrate Hanukkah is because Hashem fought our battles for us. We were outmanned, outnumbered, outgunned, and Hashem miraculously saved us. That was the real reason for Hanukkah. However, explains the morale, it wasn't clear to the people of that generation that the miracle of the war was a miracle. It looked like it was their might and their gvura. It was only when they lit this little bit of oil, and that little bit of oil miraculously lasted eight days, 
It was only when they saw the miracle of the oil lasting that that revealed to them that the miracle of the battles was also the Yad Hashem. Until that point, they thought it was their might, their gvura, their wisdom, their strength that won them the battle. It was only once they saw the miracle of a little bit of oil lasting eight days that it revealed to them that so too were the battle were miraculous. Each one is correct, explains Moral. The real reason we have Hanukkah is because of the battles. It wasn't clear that it was a miracle until the miracle of the oil. So Chazal tell us both are the reasons. The real reason is the battle. It wasn't clear that it was a miracle until the oil lasted. But in fact, both are correct. Both are right. And this is how the Moral explains the Gemara to be consistent with the Alanisim. And this would be very interesting if weren't for a very basic fact, and that is history. If we look at even the basic understandings of the historical events that transpired, I think we're going to find this morale very, very difficult to understand. And let me begin with one piece of background. There are two Megillahs written about the time period of Hanukkah. One was re- actually, Rosadi Gohan says, was written by the Bnei Hashvanoi. Neither Megillah was accepted into the Tanakh because it was written long after the end of the Tanakh period. But apparently both are considered very accurate. And certainly the one that Rashad Digon says was written by the Bnei Hashemroi, he himself translated into Arabic. So clearly it has a lot of veracity. But in any case, let's look at the historical perspective. Let's try to get an understanding of the times. On the 25th day of Kuslev in 168 and before the Common Era, Adiochus marches into Yerushalayim. The first thing he does is he kills 40,000 Jews. He takes another 40,000 as slaves. He then steals the remaining kalim, the golden kalim of the base of Migdash. He shechs a pig and he imitates the Avodah. They were pretty learned in the ways of the Jews. And he himself went through all the steps of the Avodah, but instead of a carbon, he took a pig, mocking the Jews. He then brought a harlot into the country Kadashim and performed a sin on top of a Torah scroll, and he set out to eradicate Judaism from the Jewish people. His initial decrees were Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Mila. In fact, the term Chashmanoim, according to many, is an acronym. Chashman, Ches is for Chodesh. He tried to eradicate Rosh Chodesh. Shin is for Shabbos. Mem is for Mila. The three decrees initially were against Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Mila, Chashmanoim, Chashman, because they fought, the Chashmanoim fought to defend against these three decrees, but his decrees did not end there. His decrees were extraordinarily pervasive, and his goal was to eradicate Judaism. But he was not a man to trifle with. He had a very simple punishment. If you violated the rule of the king, you were summarily executed. But he was oftentimes very cruel and barbaric in the way he executed you. The rule for Mila was if a woman was found giving her son a bris Mila, she was hung and the baby was hung around her neck, both of them to sit there for the birds of prey to eat their flesh. And it wasn't long before it became extraordinarily difficult to give your child. It tells the story of a woman whose husband died and she goes up to the walls of Yishalayim. And she calls out to Bagris, who was one of the generals, and says, Bagris, you think you've eradicated Brismila from our people? She takes out from under her coat a baby, a newborn. She takes out a knife, says a bracham, does a Brismila, and she jumps to her death along with the baby because there was no hope. And in a very short time, it became an impossibility to give your child a Brismila within the city of Yerushalayim, but the oppression didn't stop there. The oppression was pervasive, and it wasn't just Shabbos, it wasn't just Rosh Chodesh, anything to do with Judaism. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to know how effective their decrees were, in those days we learned Torah from a Torah scroll. That's how, that was the only Sorim we had. At the very end, Yehuda Maccabee, when we won the war, Yehuda Maccabee sends out messages, quickly, quickly, come send scribes. We have found Sifrei Torah. There were no Sifrei Torah in Eretz Yisrael. They're basically burnt, eliminated. We have Sifrei Torah, come send scribes, and you can copy from our texts. In a very short time, the Jewish nation were in grave, grave jeopardy. You see, the initial decrees were expanded and expanded to the extent that within a short time of Antiochus being in the city, 
He made decrees that anyone walking in the streets of Yerushalayim had to wear the Greek coat, had to speak the Greek language, had to wear the Greek hat. Anyone who was seen walking in the streets looked like a Greek, spoke like a Greek, and acted like a Greek, because in any way, if you acted like a Jew, you were executed. The land was desolate. He started in the big cities and then began spreading. And after a while, if you wanted to keep loyal to the Torah, you would flee. The only hope was to leave to the small provinces, to the mountains. If you were in a city in Eretz Yisrael, you could not keep the Torah. And if you'd like a perspective on how powerful Antiochus was, let's focus on just some of what the time was like. The Rabbanu Chumash explains to us that this is the second base of Mikdash. The first base of Mikdash, we were autonomous, we were mighty. This is the second base of Mikdash, and there were three things missing from the second base of Mikdash that were in the first. The first is that during the second base of Mikdash, most Jews did not live in Eretzestral. If, as a matter of fact, during this time period, there were cities in Alexandria, in Alexandria, Egypt, there was shuls that were so large, the Gemara tells us they used to have flags in the front. To know when to answer Baruch Hu, to know when to answer Yeshmei Rabbah, they would raise a flag because the shuls were so large that you couldn't possibly hear on the back of the shul. Josephus estimates that during this time period, there were at least a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. Meaning to say, most Jews were not living the entire second base of Migdash in Eretz Yisrael. Number two, the divine presence was nowhere near as felt. You couldn't feel a Shekhinah anywhere near as much. But number three, even more significant, we were not an autonomous nation. During the entire second base of Migdash, we were under the rulership, we were a vassal nation to the ruling powers of the time. The first base of Migdash is destroyed. After close to the 70 years of Golos, Esther, the Purim story, Esther has a son, Dayavish. Dayavish is Jewish, and Dayavish allows the rebuilding of the second base of Mikdash. But it was under his permission, under Paras and Madai's provenience, that we were allowed to rebuild the base of Mikdash, and we remained under foreign entities, under foreign governments. We were a vassal state during that entire time period. And Nirvana explains that we were not independent. We didn't have our own armies. We never owned navies. We were a vassal state. We paid taxes. We obeyed their laws because we were not an independent nation. In 319 before the Common Era, Alexander the Great gains world dominion. He was the single ruler of the entire earth, and clearly then at that point, Eretzor was under his providence. He was kindly to the Jews. He looked favorably. But in his time period, he began spreading the Greek culture. He died at a very young age, according to most historians, at the age of 33. He died, and his malucha, his monarchy, was split up amongst the four powers. Those four powers changed hands a number of times. And in 175, before the Common Era, Antiochus comes to power over that Greek, that part of the Greek dynasty, the Yavan Syria dynasty. The Megillah describes that since the time of Alexander, there had never been such a powerful king. And clearly we paid taxes to Antiochus. We were vassal to him. He was the ruler. The Rabban explains that if it weren't for the Hashmonoim, we didn't have our own army. The most powerful nation in the world at the time occupies our cities. They have powerful armies, they have powerful legions. We have nothing with which to fight. And more than that, for centuries, we haven't been an independent nation. But if you'd like to know how bleak the situation is, there's one thing that makes it even more clear. Let's focus on the following fact. In 168, before the coming era, Antiochus enters the city of Yerushalayim. Now that should make you wonder. Yerushalayim is on a mountain. And the mountain is high up, and it's fortified, surrounded by the Chomos Yerushalayim. The walls of Yerushalayim were considered impenetrable. In fact, each of the base of Mikdash, when they were destroyed, it was considered a miracle that the enemy was able to destroy the walls. How did Antiochus get into the city? So at this point, the Greek Syrian were the ruling party, Antiochus's nation, and they weren't just a nation state, they were also a culture. And we Jews, when we live amongst Goyim, oftentimes we look up to the Goyim, oftentimes we try to take on their ways, 
And the Greek represented the advances in society. The Greek represented the progressive ways. And many, many Jews wanted to be like the Greeks. They were called Mishavnim, and they were Hellenists. They became more Greek than the Greeks. But if you understand the Greek culture, you'll understand that it's quite ethical towards being a Jew. Let's begin with the following. The Olympic Games. We know the Olympic Games are created after the Games in Athens. But the Olympic Games are but a mere representation. They're sports. A sports athlete in our day is a person. He may be an entertainer, may be highly skilled, but we understand what he is. In those days, the athletes and the gymnasium represented a culture. That was the Epicurean culture, what we call Apicorsum, which represented a culture of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die, and there's no world to come, there's no Olam Haba. The greatest morality is your own happiness. And that was the culture of the Greeks. That Greek-Syrian culture of Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry, was what many, many Jews adopted, what many, many Jews wanted to be like. And you know all of the Greek tricks, the vomitorium, where you'd eat, 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 and then you couldn't eat anymore, so your party had to end, so you went to a place to return what you ate so you could continue partying. And the Greeks were famous for their... Various, various activities. But one thing that's very interesting to note is that the Greeks would wrestle in their gymnasium, and that was one of their big events, but they'd wrestle naked. Now, these Jews had a great problem. You could wear the cloak of a Greek. You could learn the Greek language. You could talk like a Greek. But when you wrestle naked, you don't have an orla. You're clearly not a Greek. The Megillah explains to us that many Jews underwent a very painful procedure to stretch the skin so that it would look like they didn't have a bris milah. They went to such an extent that they so much wanted to be more Greek than the Greeks that they adopted the ways, learned the culture, and wanted to be nothing but Greek. And they were at war with Torah. They were at war with the Chachamim. And if you'd like to know how bleak it was, the Megillah opens up that they offered a bribe you see, they wanted to rename Yerushalayim, they being the Hellenists, they being the Jews who were Mishavnim, who wanted to be more Greek than the Greek. They wanted to re- rename Yerushalayim Antioch, after Antiochus, and they paid a bribe. They offered 130 talents of silver for Antiochus to open a gymnasium in Yerushalayim. Now you may say, what's the big deal about opening a gymnasium? Maybe it's a YMCA. If you understand the Greek culture, it was the base of Arazara. That's where you served Mercury, Zeus, whatever your gods were. And they realized that Antiochus didn't dare do it because it would mean a war. They paid a bribe of 130 talents of silver. A talent is about 50 pounds. They paid a huge sum of money to pay for the soldiers that would have to protect this base mislock, this place of Odazara in Yerushalayim. And the Megillah opens up with the fact that that's what Antiochus did. He opened this base mislock. And according to many sources, if you'd like to know how Antiochus entered the city of Yishalayim, the Mishabdim, the Hellenists, opened the doors for him. They opened the doors for their hero to march in. And to give you a perspective on how bleak the situation really was, the Megillah shares with us an interesting story. At the very beginning of the story, there were a thousand Jews who were in a cave. And the Yevonim, the Greek soldiers, found out about them, and they called into the Jews in the cave, come out, drink our wines, eat our food, be one with us, and you'll live in peace. And it was a meeting amongst the Jews inside the cave. And they said, it's Shabbos now. If we're going to leave and fight, we're going to Mechal Shabbos. They sent out a message, we're not leaving. The Yevonim lit a fire at the mouth of the cave, they blew the smoke in, and a thousand men, women, and children were killed. When Antiochus heard about this, he was furious. They were armed. They outnumbered the Yavonim. Why didn't they go out and fight? And I heard of Shmuel Irons offer a possible explanation. Because Allah is Mechal Shabbos now, because you'll keep many Shabbosim. That's why you're allowed to save a life. That's why you're allowed to fight. But they realized, yes, we're going to win now. But by next Shabbos or the Shabbos thereafter, we're going to either be killed or after Michal Shabbos, there was no point. They realized the situation was so black, so unlikely that they would su- succeed, that they felt they'd better off die innocent, and they were su- 
That's how they went to their death inside the cave. To understand how the revolt actually began, the Miguel explains to us that it wasn't a planned revolt. The way Antiochus planned the taking of Eretz Yisrael was city by city. After the cities were all taken, and then they would go into the small outer-lying provinces. There was one province called Madaius, which is about 10 kilometers from Yerushalayim. And in that small little province lived the Kohen Gadol, Matisho. Matisho had five sons. Yehuda was Bachar, Shimon, Eloza, Yochanan, and Yonasan. And when the Greek soldiers came to that area, they brought all the Jews to the center of town. And the Pekid, this officer was in charge, recognized Matisho as the Kohen Gadol. Even though at that point he wasn't acting as the Kohen Gadol, even before because it was a board position, but the Jews recognized him as such. And the kid calls out to Matashio, Matashio, you are the head priest. I want you to serve first. Serve our gods, drink our wine, eat our foods, and you'll ride on the king's horse. You'll be treated with great honor. As the kid, as the officer said those words, another Jew rushed forward and said, no, let me be the first one to serve your gods. Matashio, when he saw that, was so infuriated, he reached under his robe and took out a sword and stabbed that Jew. He then jumped to the kid. Then his brother, his sons ran out. They began slashing and killing. There weren't many soldiers there. And the five sons killed out all of the soldiers. And the rebellion began. But it wasn't a rebellion. Because they didn't plan this rebellion. And they didn't start a war. What they did was they fled to the mountains. There were five sons and one Kohen Gadol who just did something that was considered absolutely insane. They basically attacked the most powerful nation in the world with six people and there was no army there was no war they escaped and they hid in the in the in the mountains and if you'd like to know how the beginning process started there weren't wars initially the five sons would wait for the Yvonne soldiers to come through a mountain pass they would jump on them and kill them take their weapons and slowly slowly guerrilla skirmishes small little battles but the word began spreading the coin Gadol and his sons is in Yerushalayim, outside Yerushalayim. They're in the mountains, they're fighting. And some Jews began joining them. Some Jews began joining them. For an entire year, there was not one battle between the Mishyabn, between the Yavonim and the Makabim, because there was no Jewish army. But as the forces began gaining, Yehuda became the leader, and they began getting a reputation of being a powerful force to reckon with. And at that point, Antiochus decided that he's going to wage war against these Jews. And he sends his general Apollonius. Apollonius was a well-known general, had won many wars for Antiochus, and he heads out with literally thousands of soldiers. And this was the first battle that Yehuda Maccabee fought against this Apollonius. Apollonius lands on the shores of Eretzol with thousands and thousands of foot soldiers, and many, many cavalry, and Yehuda Maccabee and his men gathered against them, and clearly it was to be a rout. There was no way they'd win, but somehow it was that they won. Not only did the Jews won, Yehuda killed Apollonius, took his sword, and from that moment on, every battle he waged, he carried Apollonius' sword into battle. Now at this point, Antiochus realized he had a problem on his hands, because one of his main generals was just destroyed, they were outnumbered, but I mean, they were clearly routed. So he sends Siron. Siron was a Yavan general, and Siron decided he was going to take revenge by personally killing Yehuda. Now, you should know something interesting. We have a Takana from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu that before going to war, the day before war, every Jewish soldier would fast. It was a day of tshuva, and they are preparing. Yehuda knew that Siron's men were going to attack the next day. So they sat in Tainus, and towards the end of the day, when their fast is almost completed, at that moment they were surrounded and attacked. They miscalculated. It was supposed to be the next day, but Siron ended, attacked them earlier. And at which point his men said, we're going to be destroyed. How can we fight? Says you, Demachabee, these words, let us fight and die, Al-Kiddush Hashem. Better we should die this way, for the honor of Hashem's name. And that's what they all knew. They were so outnumbered, so outmanned, and it was the end of a fast day. They were tired, they were weak. But not only did they win, they destroyed that entire army. They took all of the enemy's weaponry, and they took whatever they could from them, 
And in fact, they were now a major force to be reckoned with. And at this point, Antiochus realized that he has a real problem on his hands because they were becoming a force that was known, that was recognized, and many Jews were now beginning to join them. So at this point, he sends Nicanor to Yerushalayim. Nicanor was a soldier, he was a general in Antiochus' army. Nicanor lands on the shores of Eretzol with 40,000 foot soldiers and 7,000 cavalry. But Nicanor wanted to ingratiate himself with Antiochus. And he told Antiochus he's going to solve the national debt. You see, a number of years earlier, in 199 before the Common Era, Rome and Yovam, the Greek dynasty, fought a war. And the Yovanim lost. And from that time on, there were two stipulations in the peace treaty. Number one, every year the Yovanim nation would have to pay a tax to Rome of 2,000 talents of silver. Number two, they can never use battle elephants again in war. Nicanor said to Antiochus, Your Majesty, I know that it's soon time for you to pay the 2,000 talents of silver. I know his king's coffers are empty and you don't have the money to pay. I would like to take care of the problem. Allow me, Your Majesty, to solve the national debt. What was Nicanor's plan? He told all the slaves merchants in the area, if you come with me to Israel, I'm going to sell to you slaves at an unprecedented low cost. I'm going to sell you a slave, a single slave for a talent of silver. You could buy 90 Jews for one talent of silver. And again, Nicanor's plan was to solve the debt. If you do the math, if he's selling 90 Jews for a talent of silver, he plans to take 180,000 Jews as slaves. He gathers all the slave merchants. They come with their money. They come with their bonds necessary to take the slaves into captivity. And they get on boats and they land on the shores of Eretz Now, at no point in the war did Yehuda Maccabee have more than 5,000 men in under his dominion. They land with 40,000 foot soldiers, 7,000 cavalry. Yehuda with his less than 5,000 men. And there's now going to be a war, and the results of the war are going to be catastrophic because 180,000 Jews are going to be sold into slavery. But here's a more frightening part. Nicanor landed with 40,000 men, but along the way to the battle, he picked up another 20,000 men, many of whom were Jews who were misyavnim, who wanted to fight against the Torah loyalists. They waged the war, and not only did Yehuda and his men win, they killed 9,000 of Nicanor's soldiers, but as significantly, they captured the slave merchants and captured their money. Now Yehuda Maccabee had all the arms that he needed, he had all the money he needed to buy munitions and supplies and etc. And now he was a very, very powerful force to be reckoned with. For an entire year, there was no major battles, because Antiochus realized the only way he could win would be a major decisive battle, and he was so desperate that he decided actually to break the second treaty with Rome. You see, when he sends his general Lysias out to conquer the Jews, he sends Lysias with 60,000 foot soldiers, again, about 7,000 cavalry, and an entire garrison of elephants. Now, an elephant is a huge, huge behemoth. If you've ever seen crowd police, when they'll show up with horses, a horse weighs 2,000 pounds. You can be the most powerful man in the world. You can't stand in front of a horse. A horse will plow through a row of men like it's nothing, but that's not an elephant. An elephant weighs upwards of 14,000 pounds, and there's no way a human being can stop it. There were no tanks. <clears throat> there were no aircraft. We're dealing with hand-to-hand combat, and when the Zayas lands on these shores with an entire garrison of elephants, everyone knew what the outcome would be. They would <clears throat> wrap these elephants, gird them in steel, they would give them grape rinds to eat, which made them somehow very angry. There'd be archers on top, and the elephants would charge through and break through all bounds. 60,000 infantry, 7,000 cavalry, entire garrison of elephants, they fight against the what's left of the Jewish nation. And one of the brothers, Shimon, becomes Shimon Meimit Pilim. What Shimon would do is he would jump on the elephant, stab, jump out, jump from elephant to elephant, killing all the elephants. And not only did they win that war, they destroyed that, na- they destroyed that army, 
sentinel Isaiah's running, and he killed almost every one of those elephants in battle. At the end of that battle, they went to find Shimon, and they couldn't find him. Unfortunately, he was killed. An elephant fell on him. But in fact, they won that war, and they routed the Yavonim and effectively kicked them out of Eretz That is the 25th day of Kislev in 165 BCE. On the 25th day of Kislev, 168 BCE, Antiochus entered Yishlaim. Three years later, on the 25th of Kislev, Yudah Maccabee won the war, and it says to his men, now let Yushalayim, let us go up to Yushalayim. And the victorious army began marching to Yushalayim, and they got to the Kodshik, they got to the base of Mikdash, and as soon as they got there, they tore Kriya, because the base of Mikdash was in shambles. Initially, it was great sport for Antiochus to do what he wanted to do there, but it was basically desolate. No one had been there for years. There was grass growing in the cracks. It was filthy. It was dirty. They tried beginning to clean up the chutzer, begin cleaning up the areas that they could. And in fact, the first menorah was made out of shpudim. There were no kalim left. They took metal rods and basically put together, fashioned a menorah. But all of the beauty of the world was gone. They tore Kriya because this was not the base of Migdash that they had left three years earlier. So here's the question. Is there a same person who could have looked at that and said, wow, I told you that. The power of the Jews. Look at the power of the Jews, how powerful they are. Is there a same person who could watch Kohanim take a small band of men and win against the most powerful nation in the world and say it's not a miracle? But that's what the moral is saying. The moral says that if it weren't for the miracle of oil, the people there looked at the Jews and said, yeah, you see that? I always told you, give a Jew a 22, bright boys, those good fighting men, Jewish army. The problem is, how could anyone say that? How could anyone think that? It's so miraculous, so beyond description. How could you or I think that? How could they have thought that? And I'd like to share with you that this is exactly what the moral is teaching us. From the vantage point of history, looking back, you see clearly who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and you see the miracle of the time. But if you're living in the times, you're living in those days and ages, it's very, very difficult to see that clearly. And it looks like Yehuda Maccabee, they were fight. They were brave warriors. They fought the war. Okay, it was good. They, They had success. But it wasn't seen as a miracle. And it wasn't until they saw the little bit of oil that couldn't possibly last eight days and that that revealed back to them the miracle of the battles, because until that point they felt that it was their war, their fight, their might, and they didn't recognize it as a Nesah Hashem. And this would be a very difficult explanation. And you might say to me, it can't be, if it weren't for the fact that you and I lived through about the same experience as described in the Megillah. About 50 years ago, and the Jewish nation lived through a miracle of maybe far greater proportions and maybe far more of a revelation of Hashem's hand. And that is the Six-Day War. If you understand what happened during the Six-Day War, it's 1967. There were 3 million Jews living in Israel, surrounded by 100 million Arabs. But I'd like to understand what that means. The land ratio of the Arabs versus the Jews was 650 to 1. Israel was a tiny little sliver of a nation the size of New Jersey, not even the size of New Jersey, because it wasn't as large as it is now. But even more than that, the Arab nations were spending four times as much per year on armament, on equipment, on supplies, as were the Jews. Now, we think of the Arabs as some hashish-smoking, turban-wearing primitives, but I believe that's a very false misunderstanding. And they were highly trained armies, the Egyptians, the Syrians, even the Jordanians. The USSR invested incredible amounts of time, resources, and money to train the Egyptians, to train the Syrians. As a matter of fact, Israel was afraid to shoot down a plane. Anytime an Egyptian plane came over Israeli airspace, Israel was afraid to shoot it down. Why? Because it might well be flown by a Russian Soviet army officer. You see, there were so many Soviet officers training the Egyptians, training the Syrians, 
that Israel was afraid to shoot down planes because it might cause an international incident that a Soviet soldier has been killed over Israeli airspace. But to give you an illustration of how serious the times were, I was a little boy at the time. I was in grade school. And I remember that they made an appeal. The Six-Day War began, and the next day in school, they asked us to go home and bring in bedsheets. Bedsheets. Why bedsheets? Because everyone knew there would be so many casualties, so many Israeli soldiers were going to be killed or wounded that they couldn't possibly have enough bedsheets in the hospitals. They asked the Jewish people around the world to do what they could, and they asked our school to gather bedsheets because that was one of the things that were needed. But interestingly enough, the Six-Day War was not won in six days. The Six-Day War was won in six hours. Because you see, the real battle was the Egyptian Air Force against the Israeli Air Force. And during the first six hours of the war, almost every single Egyptian airplane was destroyed on the ground. On the ground. Once the Egyptians had no air cover, Basically, Israel could do what they want. They could enter the Sinai. They could take the Golan Heights because there was no air cover. But it was the first six hours of the war that really determined the future. Time magazine ran an article after the war describing something curious. You see, Egypt and Israel are pretty close. And Egypt realized that if there'd be a war, likely the Israelis would attempt to bomb the Egyptian air bases. So what the Egyptians did was for every hangar that contained a plane, they built right next to it a decoy hangar. So every single airport had a plane, a hangar with planes. Right next to it was a decoy hangar that was empty. Therefore, even if Israel somehow managed to bomb the airport, there was only a 50% chance of them actually knocking out the planes because every other hangar would be containing nothing. Only some hangars had the planes, others were empty. Therefore, it was a good plan for them to protect their planes. They discovered after the war that almost every bomb the Israeli Air Force dropped was a direct hit on the hangars containing the planes. And almost every single hangar that was the decoy that was empty was left untouched. But here's the other part. And that same time article reports that the West Point cadets were given a challenge. They were given a challenge after the war to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. You see, in those six days, what Israel did was not just expand their borders incredibly, not just beat out armies that were surrounding them every side. They took an entire huge track of the Sinai Desert. They took the, the Golan Heights, and it was considered a miraculous victory to the extent that the West Point cadets were given a senior thesis. The senior thesis was to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. The professor gave them topography maps, gave them access to computers and access to other various books, and etc. And their senior thesis was to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. They were given three months of the assignment and told to come back with it. After a few days, the students come back to their professor and say, Sir, based on the sheer heights of the cliffs, based on the weakness of the Israeli armaments, the strength of the Jordanian foothold over there, Syrian footholds, there is no way to possibly plan the taking of the Golan Heights because it's impossible. The professor looked at the maps, looked at the strengths of the various battalions, he agreed, and he gave them another thesis. But here's the point. Israel took the Golan Heights. They beat their army. They took over the entire Sinai Desert. They did that which any human being would recognize as physically impossible. They won a war against such odds, against such incredible, preposterous odds. And here's the point. What message does it say to us? Unfortunately, the message is the same as what the morale explained then. How many Jews at that moment said, it's the Yad Hashem. It's clearly a nace. It's clearly a miracle. And even we who claim to be Torah-loyal Jews... How clearly do we see it? How clearly do we see the miracle of a small little band? 650,000 Jews occupied Palestine when they declared their independence in 1948. Surrounded then by millions, 50 million Arabs, with no army whatsoever, with no training. And not only do they survive, they win that war, they win the 56 war, they win the 67 war. They're now considered the powerful, powerful Goliath of the area. They're now considered such a superpower that they can easily beat every one of their enemies as well as all the enemies combined at any time. 
And if you study the events and look what happened, you say to yourself, this is the Yad Hashem. This is miraculous. This is beyond description. But to do that, you have to stop. You have to look at the events. You have to ask yourself, what are the odds? <clears throat> what are the odds of this happening? What are the odds of this succeeding? And what the morale is telling us is that you can live amongst miracles. Yehuda Maccabee and his men lived day after day, week after week. They fought a battle for three years. And to the Jews living at the time, it looked like, wow, Giborim, powerful Maccabee. I told you that. Look at that. And they didn't see the nace. How could it be? How could Kohenim, it's like a, a Rosh Hashiva leading his yeshiva in battle against the Marine Corps. We're going to take on the U.S. Marine Corps. Come on, Roshul Kamenetsky and the Philadelphia yeshiva. Let's go. We're going to take on the U.S. Marine Corps. It's absurd. You can't fight those battles. A Kohen is a, is a, he's a Kohen. He teaches a Torah. He works in the base of Migdash. He's not a soldier. You can't have Ma'atim destroy Rabim, train powerful forces. It doesn't work. Yet the morale explains to us that if it weren't for the miracle of the oil, they would have seen it as kochi it's just nature. It's good. It's Hashem helps a little bit, I guess, but it wasn't a miracle. And I believe there's no clearer example of exactly that than the fact that we, the Jewish nation, now occupy our land. After 1,900 years of exile, we now occupy our land, have rebuilt it from a barren wasteland. If you asked Mark Twain what the country looked like in 1880, he described it as desolate, barren. There was nothing, sand dunes. And now you see a metropolis built up. You see city-states that rival any cities in Europe. And you see the most powerful nation in the region. And what you see is the Yad Hashem. But as Moral explains, you have to open your eyes to see it. You open your eyes, you see the nace. If you don't open your eyes, you don't see it. And I believe this is something to think about when we light Hanukkah candles. Yes, Hashem saved us back then, but it's every generation. It's time after time. This is a very long, bitter gullus. And every generation they rise against us, and every generation Hashem saves us. And the miracles are more clear and more clear. But you have to stop, cut through the static, recognize the miracles, and then you see the Yad Hashem. And I'd like to close with one story that I think well encapsulates this, this exact example. There was a book written called The Seventh-Day Soldiers Speak. Now, I read, I heard this story told over by somebody, and I had great difficulty getting the book. First, I want to tell you the story, and then I want to explain to you why I had to get the book. The story goes like this. These were basically, the book was written by soldiers who lived through the six days. The name of the book, again, is The Seventh-Day Soldiers Speak. This was the day after, so to speak, the six days, soldiers recounting their experiences during the six-day war. One story was written by a kibbutznik. He was a fellow who was completely irreligious, certainly before the war. And he describes that he was the lead jeep heading into the Sinai. Basically, the orders were for them to drive into the Sinai. And he was the driver of that jeep. And the rest of the the rest of the battalion was to follow behind him. In any case, he starts driving with four men with him along in the tank, I'm sorry, in the Jeep, and they're driving and they're driving. He's about 50 kilometers into the desert when he realizes that he's alone. You see, when you drive through sand, you're kicking up sand. There's no communication. You can't see. And he was 50 miles deep into the Sinai when he realized that there was nobody following him. He was just those four soldiers alone in the Sinai desert. And then they look up and they see that there were a few MiGs, a few Egyptian planes who had not been destroyed, and they were spotted. And the Egyptian planes saw that there was an Israeli jeep driving through the desert. He says he stopped the tank. He told the men, run out. They ran into the sand. They all spread out, lie down full face in the sand. And he describes when the Egyptian planes came low, they began flying as low as they could. Remember, there was no, this is the desert. There's no trees, nothing they're going to hit. They could fly as low as they wanted, and they began strafing. They could feel the bullets ripping up the sand, and the planes pass, and he stands up, and he looks left, and he looks right, and he sees none of the Israeli soldiers were hit, but the Egyptians realize they missed. So the planes turn around, and they come back for a second pass. He says to men, lie down. They lie down face down the sand, and again, he describes the bullets ripping up the sand. And again, the planes pass. He stands up untouched and all of his men untouched. Again, the Egyptians realize they've missed. So they come for a third pass. Come for a third pass, face down the sand, bullets ripping up the sand. 
and again they stand up. But now the Egyptians realize that they had missed three times, and they were not going to take a fourth miss. He describes that on the fourth pass, the Egyptian planes dropped napalm. Napalm is a petroleum byproduct. It explodes into a fireball on impact. He describes the searing heat as the napalm exploded all around him. And as the Egyptian planes passed, they suddenly they saw the Israeli jets were chasing them. The Egyptian planes ran out. He stood up and he looked at all of the soldiers and every single one of them were not scratched, were not hurt. Now, when I heard someone tell this story, I said, I must get this book. I went on Amazon, used books. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. Finally, I got the book. And when I read the book, I read it detail for detail, exactly as I, said, as I told it to you. But here was the interesting part. It was the end of the story that really caught my eye. After living through this, and after describing these events, the four passes of the plane, the strafing bullets, the napalm, and standing up realizing he was untouched, he concludes with these words, I guess we got lucky. I want to drop the book. What did you say? I guess we got lucky. That's your conclusion? You lived through a nase gully. You were like, you're talking about shooting ducks in a barrel. You're talking about shooting fish. You're talking, you're, you're right there. And bullets, napalm, nothing happens. I guess we got lucky. But the sad reality is that most Jews, most of our brethren, and I'm sorry to say even ourselves, we live through Nisim, we live through miracles, and we say, yeah, okay, it's nice, it's good, it's wonderful, you know. But do we see the Yad Hashem? And I think that's what the morale is saying to us. Unless you stop, unless you contemplate, unless you realize the incredible miracles, they'll pass right by you. You won't even understand it. The fact that the Jewish nation is alive, the fact that we now occupy our land, and the fact that we see every sign of Mashiach coming, we still keep the same Torah, and we learn the same halachas of Abayi and Rava, we wear the same tzitzits and the same tefillin as Rashi and Tosas, the fact that our nation keeps its way, the fact that we reoccupy our land, the fact that we learn Torah, Torah flourishes as it never did before, is the clearest sign that we are ut, ut, ut at the time of Mashiach coming. All we have to do is cut through the haze, see the Yad Hashem, and recognize where we are and why Hashem does things. Hashem grants us the wisdom and understanding to do that and use the Hanukkah days properly. And now, I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. You can either type them in, or you can raise your hand if you're brave. Please feel free to raise your hand. I'd love to call on you because that will save my voice for a moment. Uh, if you're shy or you prefer typing in, you could type in the question. Um, I also want to mention one more time so that I don't forget the 10 really dumb mistakes um, the Very Smart Couples Make is in, is in print now. It's in the Swarm stores. It's also on the schmooze.com. If you like, you can pick it up in the Swarm stores or Amazon. But if you go to the schmooze.com, there's a big advantage, and that is that if you purchase the book, not only is it now on a discount, it's nineteen ninety five till the end of Hanukkah, but if you purchase it now, not only do you get the discounted price, you also get three bonuses. Number one, you'll get the three, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes audio book. You'll get the ebook, and you'll get the also the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. The audio book is a professionally recorded uh, audio book of the, of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes. I worked with a sound engineer. I got special equipment, and I narrated the book, and it came out beautifully. Baruch Hashem, it came out very nicely. That, by the way, is a $19.99 value. Um, you'll get that as a bonus. You'll get the ebook, which is, you know, you can read it on the, your Kindle or, or wherever you read your, your ebook. And you'll get the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. Marriage Trans- Transformation Bootcamp is an online seminar, a six-part online seminar that I gave a number of years ago. It was professionally recorded and put together, and it's, it contains all the workbooks, all of the videos, the audios, etc. It's a very, very comprehensive program. So if you go to theshoes.com and order the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes, not only do you get the hardcover for just $19.95, you'll also get the audiobook, ebook, and the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp as a free bonus. It's my Hanukkah gift, so please, uh, please avail yourself of it. Please, please take advantage of it. Okay, now please feel free to raise your hand with questions and etc. Um, okay, Batya, you have your hand up. Let's see. I'm going to allow you to talk, and I believe you have the floor. Rabbi, wonderful discussion tonight. Thank you so much. I'm enjoying Thanks. it while watching my candles. So this this goes back to to your book. So. Um, I have a son who is dating, long-term um, 
it's not a long-term relationship. It's been a couple of a couple of months, and they live in uh, different cities. So he said to me, uh, "I'm going to learn with her and learn about relationships." And I said to him, "It's my understanding that you're not looking for a chavrusa; you're looking for a wife. So you should learn about relationships with a man, and she should learn." separately and then whatever so um then i i thought that your book would be a good source uh having said that he said no it's either i learn with her or not at all i said okay fine talk to a rabbi if he says it's okay then i'll back down so he talked to the rabbi and after shabbos he told me well we're gonna learn together but we're gonna learn parsha like fine so he still needs to learn about relationships. So one thing is, what is your opinion about people in Shaduchim learning together, mm-hmm. learning something Parsha, or learning relationships? And mm-hmm. um, I know that there's sort of, uh, there's a group that that don't do anything together, but he's he's... Um, more on the modern side. And besides, if he's going to say to me, I'm only going to learn if I could do it with her, I want him to learn. So, okay, good. Okay, fine. So let me, let me comment. So first of all, um, generally speaking, the more time a couple spend together, the less likely they are to know clearly whether there's the right one or the wrong one. So, but that as a background, um, if they're going to learn, so I, I highly recommend actually reading this book together. I, I'm fine with couples. In fact, couples ask me, should they read the 10 really dumb mistakes together? And the answer is yes, provided one thing. You see, I wrote the book with both men and women in mind, and there's a man's part and a woman's part. But you see, here's the, the, the critical point. Men typically do not understand women. Women typically do not understand men. So there's a tremendous educational piece for both. A man has to learn to understand his wife, and a wife has to un- learn to understand his husband. But both of them need to understand not just what they don't understand, they need to understand what their spouse doesn't understand about them so that they can better explain it. So I think the book is very, very helpful and provided both of them a reading to learn their part, not to point fingers. See, say, that's the rabbi said, you. that's what you need to work on. Provided you're learning to understand what you can do to improve your marriage or, in this case, your, your re- relationship, I think it's a fine thing to learn together, to read together. Uh, in general, I don't counsel couples spending that much time together, the the less, again, because it doesn't really help. Because, you, as you said, you're not looking for a chavrusa, so you're looking to see if this person is the right one for you. But the point is, certainly, you know, if they're going to learn this kind of thing together, I, have, I, I don't have any problem with it. Um, they're going to learn parsha together. Listen, what, what can I tell you? If is it better than going to the movies? Absolutely. Uh, you know, so what, what am I going to tell you? If that's If that's the question... If the question is, should they waste time or learn partial together, let them learn partial together. Uh, again, I prefer them to learn a book like this together because it might help them get closer to understanding to what it is they need in a marriage, what they need in a in a spouse, in a partner, and hopefully be able to make the decision of, is this the right one for me or not? But again, generally speaking, they'd be better off learning than doing other things, but that's just one of my thoughts on it. Thank okay, you so much. That's okay. very clear. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Okay, Avram, it looks like uh, it looks like you have the floor, Avram. Uh, let me see if I can give you the floor. Yes, you do. Shalom, Hi. Um, I had an interesting scenario that happened. I was wondering what the Rebbe's uh, take would be, like how it would have been a better way to view it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I was learning before marriage was you know, how to, um, you know, to, to clean and help out around the house a little bit. Um, even even to impress and whatever, I mean, you know, go to people's houses, you know, for a Shabbos meal, you help bring something in to, to put in the garbage or put in the dishwasher or whatever. You know, it's just when you get married, you help around your, your parents' house and your in-laws' house or whatever. Um, and then, of course, during the first year of marriage, uh, my in-laws insisted I should never help because Kassim died in the <laughs> After learning for years to help clean and help around the house, I couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Good, good, uh, good. I guess, mm-hmm. I 
guess I guess I guess we're both speaking two separate languages, and you know, of course, it became a little irritating at times. I was wondering what would be like a different perspective, I guess, when such a scenario would come up. Uh, what would be that? Uh, I guess an interesting mahalach. Um, first of all, say thank you very much. I'll enjoy my one year of being like a melech very happily, very gratefully, because I know the rest of my life I ain't going to be a melech and take it and 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 and, and enjoy it. Um, what am I going to tell you? You got to roll with the punches. You got to, you know, life brings many different situations. And one great secret: you're never going to know your spouse. Not when you first get married. Not after ten years. After twenty years, you're still learning. After thirty years, it's a constant learning process. Because guess what? You change, she changes. So you got to roll with the punches. You have to be ever astute. The most important, let me, let me borrow from the book. The two most important words that you'll ever say in your marriage are the words, that's strange. That's strange. You say them to yourself, not to your spouse. Because what happens is your spouse does something that makes no sense, no sense whatsoever. So what happens is we reach our conclusion. She's either mean or whatever, whatever conclusion we reach. If you say the words, that's strange, and you begin the curious scientific inquiry. Why would a sane, rational woman react this way to such and such an event? Why would a balanced, healthy man get so bent out of shape over this and this and this? If you say the words, that's strange, then you open yourself up to possibly understanding the inner world of your spouse. Because I guarantee your spouse is normal, your spouse is sane, your spouse is rational, but they feel differently about what happened than you do. And every time we get into a fight with our spouse, it's always because I assume that my experience defines reality. My spouse thinks as I do, my spouse feels as I do, and therefore what she's doing is absolutely irrational, absolutely makes no sense. She's flighty, she's whatever, and we use our, we demonize, we use our entire vocabulary to create this monster and what happens is we fundamentally misunderstand our spouse. If you say to yourself the words, that's strange, the next time your spouse does something, you say to yourself, that's strange. Why would you do that? Let me try to understand. Let me better understand why does this bother? Why? And by the way, a lot of times if you ask the questions in that way, you know, I really, I see you're upset. And the, the last thing in the world I'd want to do is upset you. Help me understand why it's you're, upset, you're upset so I can know the next time better how to avoid it. If you say it that way, I think you'll get a lot of further. But that's um, – I'm cheating. I'm giving you part of the book. So um, so go ahead. Look for it. And uh, did you buy the book yet, Avram? I got the pre-publication. Okay. So, did you read it through? Not yet. Not fully yet. Ah. When did you get – I'm not going to ask when you got it. You got the pre-publication last week, so you have time. Okay. Till next week. Okay. Can I ask a question on the Tasha? Uh, have a, let me hold because I have another question I want to take. So maybe you send me it by email if you can, because uh, if possible. All right. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Okay. Someone typed in a question that I, I actually want to address. Um, uh, how could one? How can a man know where to draw the line between derech eretz and stubbornness when it comes to pursuing a shidduch with the woman he thinks is bashar? Especially if one person owns their mistakes and tries to change but the other shuts down and refuses to communicate. And this is a shidduch where marriage was already discussed and seemed very close, but it paused after one disagreement. Okay, now, let me be very blunt. Many times people make mistakes. They make mistakes before they marry, they make mistakes after they marry. It could be that this person is making a major mistake, and it certainly sounds that way. You know, people, certainly women may re- overreact. They assume, Ayve, if we got into a disagreement, that means our entire marriage is going to be fighting and screaming and yelling. And they don't realize that in the best of marriages, unfortunately, there are hurt feelings. Sometimes there are voices that are raised, but there's always going to be stuff going on. It just, I don't think a marriage exists that doesn't have stuff, that doesn't have, I hate to say the word fighting. And, you know, the, the strength of your marriage is not based on whether you never fight or even you hardly ever fight. It's are you able to repair and move on, improve and grow. And most couples fight on a, you know, hopefully not so regular basis, but it's part of the reality because in the thick and thin of life, it's very hard for me not to step on my spouse's toes. We're of different genders. I don't know what her sensitivities are. And certainly in the beginning, you're going to do things that are hurtful to your spouse, certainly without meaning it and certainly without intending it, but it just, it happens. And oftentimes things escalate. And before you know it, there's words being said, things being said, and things happen. Now, if you've never been married before, you're shocked the first time you get into a fight. Oh, my goodness, that means we're heading to a divorce. 
A young couple gets into a fight, and they're not headed to a divorce. They have to learn how to repair the rift. They have to learn how to understand each other better. And as long as they repair the rift, things go on, and they can have a beautiful marriage. And there are couples, especially in the beginning, number of years who have tough times getting used to each other, because getting married is not just a uh, intuitive sort of you get married and everything's fine. It's a learning process, and it really to learn to take another human being into your midst and to really accept their way as normal and acceptable, even though it's different than your way. And to learn to live together in peace is far from simple. Everyone assumes I'm an easygoing person. It's my spouse that's the problem. The problem is your spouse is difficult. You're difficult. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all have quirks. We all have our shtick. And learning to live together in peace and harmony with, with another human being is far from simple. So it could be that when you're this person you're dating saw that you got into a disagreement, she reached conclusion, oh, my goodness, it must be we're incompatible, and it means if we'd get married, we'd be fighting and screaming, and she's dead wrong. And it could be you're meant to be, and it could be she's just overreacting. And I think it's well worth your asking her to see someone and talk to someone, etc., and to go through the process, because most likely she's overreacting to one disagreement. However, you should know something. If you do that, and you ask her to see someone, and ask her to speak to someone, and whether she does or she doesn't, if she decides that that's it, I'm breaking this off. After you've done your foolish thoughtless and you've done your best, you have to say, I get it. Hashem runs the world. And there are many times when Hashem puts a thought into a person's head, I don't want to marry this person. It looks great. It looks perfect, but it isn't. And Hashem will put a thought into that person's mind that for whatever reason, they decide to end the shidduch, decide to end the process. And that's Basharit. That's where Hashem runs the world. And just because she seems matim, and just because it seems that it's going the right way, doesn't mean it is. So the bottom line is, I think you should pursue it, and you should do everything in your power to pursue it, and especially ask her to speak to someone older and wiser to get some perspective. But after you've done that, if it doesn't succeed, that's when you say, I get it, Hashem runs the world. And many times Hashem will do things, orchestrate things in this way, specifically because you're not made for each other, you're not meant to be together, and it would be disastrous if you got married. By the way, how many times you see Hassan and Khaled are so infatuated, so infatuated, and then they get married and they're fighting and screaming and yelling, and Hashem Yerachem. So don't always assume just because it looks good, it is good. Again, I agree with you. Your established should be to get it to talk to someone because this is probably normal and it's probably just expected, and it's not a big deal. But if at the end of your attempts, your serious attempts to do that, if, in fact, she doesn't come around, then again, I think you just accept the fact that this is Hashem's will, and, uh, and this is the situation. Uh, okay, let me take one other question here. Given the distressing political situation in Eretz is there anything we can do, or do we continue to learn Torah, do chesed, grow, etc., because those are our marching orders? So the answer is, if you are in a position to do something, you absolutely should do something. Get the joke? We can't do anything. If you're, if you're a member of the Knesset, if you're a senator, if you're a con- you can do something. But anyone else, what are you going to do? You can vote, and you should vote, and you should do what you can. And, and, but what am I, you and I, what are we going to do? So we read the newspaper, then we you should. You have to pay attention to what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's Hashem's world. Hashem runs the world. Our job is to use the world in the ways of the world. If you're in a position of power and influence, you should use your power and influence. But for the vast majority of us citizens, we're not in positions of power. We're not in positions of influence. We're supposed to know that Hashem runs the world. We do what we can. We do what we're supposed to do. But we know that it's still God's world. Even after all we've been through, even after almost 2,000 years of exile, Hashem still orchestrates the world. Hashem still protects us. Hashem still delivers these very frightening moments where it looks like it's the end, it's the end, it's the end. And suddenly there's a, it doesn't end. And the bright lights come on. And gone is Antiochus, gone is Haman, gone is Paro, gone is every enemy who tried to kill us. So, you know, again, if you're in a position of power and influence, exercise that. If not, do what you can do. Mostly what you're going to dominate, etc. Okay, um, uh, in answer to this question, any advice on how to ask her to see someone? Ask her to see someone. Tell her to read the book. The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes the Very Smart Couples Make. By the way, I guarantee whether you're married or not married, if you read this book, you will have a different understanding of marriage. How do I know this? Because I spent 10, almost 15 years working with 
hundreds and hundreds of couples. You know, I got married like everybody else got married. I was a yeshiva bacha. I thought it was a fine yeshiva bacha. And because I had a chinuch in Musr, I knew everything that I needed to know about marriage. I was an expert on marriage. And then I got married. And I discovered I knew nothing. Zero. Ephes. Now, Baruch Hashem, we have a great marriage, etc. But I didn't know much about marriage. I, you know, if something bothered my wife, I tried to work on it. If something she did bother me, she tried to, everything was fine and well. But once I started, you know, through the shrews, I began working with couples and couples began coming to me with their problems and troubles. And then I began seeing that there's really an awful lot of things that you and I don't know about marriage. And I began reading. I read pretty much every popular secular marriage book that's out there. I read countless numbers of Chazal, the various Kuntrasim uh, for, for Chassanim. I spoke to Rabbanim. I spoke to marriage, <coughs> marriage counselors. And after counseling literally hundreds and hundreds of couples over a course of 10 to 15 years, I put together what I think is an approach to marriage, what a marriage needs, <coughs> what a relationship needs, understanding gender differences, understanding the tools that bond, understanding what's needed, and I put it together, and it took me a fortune of time. To be honest with you, I finished writing this book eight years ago, but it wasn't the same book that I that I rewrote now, and it's a much, much better book. I highly recommend that you pick up this book and ask your kala, to, or this person you're going out with, to, to read it as well. And I have a feeling when she reads it, she'll have a totally different understanding of marriage, and that alone may may help. So ask her to see someone. If not, at least ask her to read the book. It'll be good for education you know, in general. Again, to get the book, it's on the schmooze.com. You can get it in the schmooze, in any of the storm stores. You can get it on Amazon. But again, if you buy it now on the schmooze.com, it's on sale at nineteen ninety five. And in addition to which, you get the three bonuses. You get the audio book, you get the ebook, and you get the marriage transformation boot camp as a free bonus. It's on for till the end of Hanukkah. And maybe slightly after, I'm not sure. But in any case, I please go to schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. You'll see a banner on top. Click on it, and then you'll be able to not just purchase the book for $19.95. By the way, it's including shipping, free shipping. So the book will be just $19.95, including free shipping. Plus, you'll get the free the three free bonuses. You'll get the audio book, the e-book, as well as Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. I urge you, please please go to the schmooze.com. Please look it up. Um, and I wish you much at Sokha, Freilich, and Hanukkah. Hope you have a good Shabbos and see you next week. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.